You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, a lot of tracks to make, so let's do this somewhat quickly, can we? It is our family service, so we're going to be involving the kids in a number of ways. We're going to be involving you in a number of ways. Uh, we're going to be having you talk about things in your seat. We're going to have some kids up here to help us, some families read scripture. So lots in store. So I want to ask you to engage and talk with me, and let's work together through two chapters in 1 Samuel, chapters 13 and 14. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there, would you? I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how this large section of Scripture is actually going to be boiled down to very manageable and simple truth that all of us can get our hands around today. From the oldest adult to the youngest child here, I think this is a very sovereign act of timing on God's part to put us in this text on this exact family service. So we're into 1 Samuel 13 and 14, these two chapters that actually are, if you combine them, it's 75 verses. Those 75 verses actually tell us four stories that are kind of threaded together. They, they're, they're really focused on two main characters, but those two characters show us one contrast. So a lot of numbers there. Let's see if we can review them. How many chapters are you looking at? Two. Together they make up how many verses? Seventy-five. Within those 75 verses, how many stories are told? Four stories, two main characters, but how many contrasts do we see? Just one. And we're going to see this morning this incredible contrast between Jonathan and Saul. And let's just be honest, comparing and contrasting is a good way we learn. Often we, we figure out things and, and we learn things by looking at what should be and what shouldn't be. We contrast and compare. That's what's happening in these 75 verses, these four stories, these two chapters. Now, I'm going to have some families help me in a moment and read some select verses from these two chapters or these 75 verses or these four stories, okay? But I want to, first of all, show you the four stories, at least uh, on the screen behind me. So if this week you'd like to read these with your family, maybe in your devotions personally, maybe with your wife or husband, or maybe just uh, in some way you want to kind of read more methodically through here, it would be very helpful. There's a lot we can't cover this morning, okay? But we're going to see the main thematic emphasis in these two uh, chapters. Here are the four stories. I'll show them behind me. Mainly, they, they involve Saul's unfounded fear in the first seven verses of chapter 13. You'll notice that when he's in this fearful place, though Jonathan actually wins the battle, he sends word throughout Israel that he won the battle. I mean, we get a, a glimpse initially and, and quickly that Saul's very insecure. He's fearful a lot. Well, on the heels of that, we see him waiting in Gilgal. Even though he had won the battle, his confidence should be high. Instead, it's low, and he can't wait for Saul. Excuse me, he can't wait for Samuel. And so he rashly and and disobeys uh, the Lord by offering the sacrifice, accepting a role that's not his, disobeying God's command. On the heels of that, Jonathan's bold faith, though, takes center stage. And though Saul was disobedient, and though Saul was fearful, Jonathan obeys the Lord. And he attacks the Philistines. Actually, just he and his uh, companion, they actually win the battle. They defeat 20 people. 
Saul hears about it, and he joins the battle after the fact and kind of takes credit again in some way. But he can sense, he can sense Jonathan's kind of the military hero in the story, though. He can sense that happening, so he becomes very rash in his behavior. He makes some really stupid rules, like no one can eat now. The army's famished. They should be celebrating, but instead he says no one can eat. So when they finally do get to eat, they actually eat in a way that's, that's against the law, so then they have to offer a sacrifice. He's upset about that. And so he makes this other stupid rule that says, if anybody were to eat before he allows them to, then he's going to put them to death. Well, guess who happened to eat not knowing of Saul's rule was his son. But fortunately, Israel steps in and they save Jonathan from being killed by his dad. This is the, these are the four stories. Saul's unfounded fear his last straw disobedience in which we see God taking the kingdom from him, Jonathan's bold faith, and then Saul's rash behavior. Let's hear some selective verses from these four stories. How many verses? And How many characters? But how many contrasts? I want you to hear the select verses that kind of highlight Saul and Jonathan and the way they are. So let's have the Lazada family up here. Let's have the Scroggs family and let's have the Squires family. They're going to read the verses to you. They'll introduce each section by telling you where to look in your Bible because it is a lot of verses. They'll just read some select ones. If you have a handout with you, feel free to follow that. The kids got one. Adults, you may have gotten one as well. But let's follow along in our Bibles, 1 Samuel 13. We'll start with the Lozada family. They'll read some select verses introducing, of course, the text and the reference. Then we'll have the Squires read some from chapter 14. And then the Scroggs will conclude us. Let's have our Bibles ready. And uh, we'll start together hearing these four stories. Okay, so this is Grace. She's going to be reading verses four and five. Three and four. Three and four. Three and four. Uh, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. This is Emmanuel reading from 8 to 14. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul, saw, Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, Well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Mish. Mikmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the, the Lord's favor, so I have compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom for over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Reading from 1 Samuel 14 will be in 6 and 7 and uh, 20 through 23. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, 
Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. We're going to finish up on uh, chapter 14, verses 43 through 46, and ending on 52. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, told him I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall be not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Thank you, families, very much. Can anybody thank these families for reading our scriptures for today? Thanks, kids. Appreciate that so much. I want to take some time and... And have you, with me, analyze the two characters that are front and center in our contrast. They are Saul and Jonathan. Now, based on the scriptures we read, and by the way, again, there's so much more here that we can cover in this simple service. So I'd encourage you to follow the stories, even in your homes, and later talk about it. But let's just take some time, and from a 30,000-foot view, let's analyze what is it about these two characters that's so different. Let's contrast them. So if you have a handout with you, you'll see on the kids' handout, there's like a... A simple T-chart, one side says Saul, one side, one side says Jonathan. I'm going to give you about 60 seconds to kind of begin that either on your own, based on the scriptures we read, or you can talk with your kids who are with you, or just as a couple you can talk. Take about 60 seconds and start listing the traits, the, the things that you see about each character on the separate sides of the T-chart. I'll come back in about 60 seconds and kind of walk you through some of those, and we'll end with kind of a theme we'll see about these two characters, Okay. Go ahead.
About 30 more seconds. Little Bible study here live in the service with you. Fifteen seconds. All right, let me show you some things that I discovered, and you probably found some of these as well. We'll just list these kind of briefly. Let's contrast and compare Saul and Jonathan from these two chapters. How many verses? Seventy-five. How many stories? How many characters? Right. But just one contrast. Saul seems and appears to be very impulsive and emotional, doesn't he? Whereas Jonathan, somewhat patient and discerning. Now, understand something. I, I, I want to pause here and say this. Often in the circles that I come from, or even in maybe some of the ones we currently kind of associate with, there's a sense in which emotion is negative and bad. Now, I don't buy into it. I think emotion's God-made and God-given and very helpful and effective. We are emotional people, Amen. So don't try to eliminate your emotions, but you do need to translate them. I've heard some folks say, well, we only live by our intellect, not our emotions. But understand something, all of your being is depraved. Your intellect is as depraved as your emotions. So all of us need all of God's Spirit to help us process our thoughts and feelings and emotions. The problem with Saul was he didn't translate what he felt so that it would come to a good decision. He just acted impulsively on his feelings, whereas Jonathan was passionate, was a warrior, and yet when he realized God had said, attack the enemy, that was pretty much of a passionate decision, and yet it was, it was rooted in something beside his emotions. It was rooted in God's command. And so I want to understand, Jonathan was patient, discerning. He looked to the root of what's going on. He didn't just kind of live on the surface of emotions. Saul was impulsive. He was also faithless, whereas Jonathan was faithful. He kept his word. Saul didn't keep his word. Some of the people have asked, well, it looks like Samuel was late, so how was Saul wrong? I don't know that the heart of the command was to wait for a certain amount of days. The heart of the command was to wait for the, for the prophet, for the judge. Does that make sense? He should not have accepted a role that wasn't his, no matter how many days he had to wait. That was the heart of the command, and that was the real core of his disobedience. He was faithless. Jonathan proved faithful. By the way, I think this is something you should wrestle with in, at your home. If you want to know the extent of Jonathan's faithfulness, look at his response to his dad. When his dad, in his rashness, says, Man, you're going to die, Jonathan, and God do it more to me if it's not you. I mean, it's like, what dad thinks this way, right? And what does Jonathan say to him? So be it. If I die, I die. Now, I don't personally think... Jonathan actually believed that his dad would kill him, but his, at least his demeanor was such that he thought, you know what, I've got a responsibility, I want to show submission, I, I want to be faithful, and, and I'll just, yeah, okay, dad, if that's what, I think he probably knew somehow God would rescue this situation. I can't prove that from the text. But I, I, I'm more intrigued by Jonathan's real demeanor of faithfulness in his role. Again, that phrase is something you ought to wrestle with with your kids at dinner. Like, man, how, would a, how could a son say that to his dad? That's amazing. Wrestle it out. Uh, talk it through. It shows, though, a real difference, doesn't it? Saul couldn't wait for anybody. Jonathan was willing to even be under his dad's authority when it looked like it might cost his life. What a contrast. 
Saul was disobedient. Jonathan was obedient. Saul had a very external focus. Jonathan was very internally driven, concerned with doing the right thing. Saul was worried about the right look. Again, it goes back to the idea of image versus substance we see here. Saul was, and these are some synonyms. Saul was horizontally kind of focused and driven. Jonathan had a vertical aspect. Saul was foolish. Jonathan wise. Here, here's how I'd sum it up. Write these down. I think Saul, as a, as a way to kind of summarize, was fearfully insecure. And I think Jonathan was faithfully obedient. I'm trying to write as well as I can. You have an insecure king, and because he is insecure and thinks his feelings and his emotions should drive everything, he makes terrible decisions. You have a secure, faithful, obedient son, and because God's character and God's commands drive his life, he obeys God in, in the face of great difficulty, not only from the Philistines, but even from his own dad at one point. Wow, what a contrast. What a beautiful comparison of one who's faithfully in, fearfully insecure and so does everything to make sure he in the end looks good and is rescued. And yet Jonathan, who says what's more important is the people and God's word regardless of what happens to me. You might could say it like this. Saul, I'm going to write this in here. You can't read it well, but these are words I thought of all week. Saul twisted God's word, twisted his actions, Twisted situations, whereas Jonathan trusted. If you took 75 verses and four stories and two characters, you could summarize them in these two words. Saul was a man who would twist whatever he had to to get his way. Jonathan was a man who would trust. Which word describes you? Are you a twister? Or are you a truster? This is really what's happening here. When we trust, by the way, let me connect some dots here. When we trust, the result is that we obey. When we don't obey, it's because we don't trust and we're trying to twist. And so we connive our own plans, figure out what we think is a better idea. The real issue in obedience is really not the obedience. The real issue in obedience is always trust. Did you hear that? The real issue is always trust. If you're a parent, you would agree with this, wouldn't you? You're like, why didn't you listen to me? They probably didn't trust you on an issue, on a situation, about a subject. And so they didn't do what you asked them to do. The real issue isn't always obedience. It's what's underneath that. It's trust. Trust. Here we see this is exactly what's true about Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan was a truster of God. And it showed in how he trusted those who were over him like his father. Saul was a twister. He didn't trust God, didn't trust those over him, and they showed up in how he consistently tried to maneuver and manipulate things around him to get his way. Again, this is the contrast we're seeing. The two characters who had totally different character. Now let's, let us connect the dots and, and understand something about trust. How does it impact our obedience? I want you to write down three things. You'll see this on the screen behind me. I'll say these somewhat briefly. The lead to our take-home truth. But just understand that when we trust and when we have an attitude of, of reliance on the Lord, it results in three types of obedience. I would say it's prompt obedience, 
reasoned obedience, and submissive obedience. And you can find these in Jonathan's life throughout this story. You find Jonathan quickly obeying the Lord. Saul is hiding out. The people are hiding with him. Some of the Israelites had even become mercenaries, had kind of changed sides. What does Jonathan do? He hears the Lord's command. He knows what God has said. And with one guy, he goes and he says, we just got to obey God, and we got to obey God now. I love his promptness. It's also reasoned obedience. You find both of these character traits kind of re, uh, symbolically and, and uh, verbally laid out for us in 1 Samuel 14, what is it, verse 6 and 7, when Jonathan says, Who knows that the Lord, it may be, he will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's a passionate response, but it's also a reasoned response because the Lord could do exactly that. He had reasoned his mind. God can do whatever he wants. He can save by many or few. He's God. He's given us the command, so let's promptly obey him and let's submit to what he says and do what he asks us to do. So Jonathan's obedience was prompt, reasoned, and submissive. By the way, Saul's was precisely the opposite. Saul did not obey promptly. He did not reason. He impulsively um, figured out in his own mind what what he thought was best, and he was not submissive to Samuel or to the Lord. For that reason, God took the kingdom away from Saul. So do you see how trust shows up in our life? Trust shows up in obedience, and I would say to you, in obedience that's characterized by promptness, reasonableness, and submissiveness. Now listen very carefully. Every parent here is saying to their son or daughter, look at that screen and listen to the pastor. But as your pastor, I want every adult to hear this. Because God, your father, wants prompt, reasonable, submissive obedience from his kids. Amen, church? He doesn't want you twisting what he said, wiggling your way out, maneuvering and manipulating to try to make it make sense in your mind. Just trust him and then obey him. God will take care of the rest. This principle was beautifully portrayed before me about two weeks ago in our own family. Brooke, our youngest daughter, uh, had uh, just finished taking the ACT for the fifth time. I say, why five times? That's a lot. It was. Well, the first four times, she came up one point shy every time of a tuition-free scholarship at the University of Iowa. That's where she plans to go, Lord willing. And so after four times, I was like, Brooke, you know what? Man, God's got this. Don't worry. It just means you probably got to work more in college. Um, we'll do something here, but we're just committed to no debt. And so usually no debt is because people want to work. That's how the Bible lays it out, and that's how it works best. Amen, church? Work equals no debt. Love that. Thanks for being on board that philosophy there. Appreciate that. <laughs> it's called a job. That's how we do this, okay? So I said, looks like you got to probably get a job in college. It'll be fine. Lots of folks have done it. We did it. We'll get through it. And then Julie pipes in. She leans and she goes, Brooke, you should take it one more time. This is after four times, okay, first of all. Four times it took it. And so I'm kind of like with Brooke. I'm like, you know, honey, four times. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, the Lord has spoken. This is his will, kind of like, you know, some preachery attitude, right? 
And she goes, no, no, we've got time. Let's take it once more. And, and Brooke's kind of with me. We're both like, I don't know. It's, it's not that much money, 50, 75 bucks to take it. But I don't, just, you know, it's just a little discouraging. You keep taking it. You're one point short. And I remember the night that Brooke said to her mother, because Julie kind of kept pressing. No, Brooke, really. Take it. And Brooke went like this. She went, okay, Mom, I'll take it. Now, in that, it was not a heart of rebellion. There wasn't like this sense of exasperation with her mother, but it was more like, you know, I'll obey what you say. I'll do it, but boy, I don't really want to. But you know what? You probably know more than me. I know you care about me, so yeah, I'll probably, you know. Kind of that whole attitude that kids have sometimes. You know, not trying to fight back, but just like, man, okay, Mom. She took the test, came home. How'd you do? I don't know. I didn't feel great about it, but, you know, who knows? Just try number five. We'll see. A few weeks later, um, she texts us on this family text thread we have. She says, I just got a letter from Iowa, but I'm afraid to open it. You know, this is over email. The email says something about congratulations. We want you to be aware of of a scholarship we have for you. She thought, well, if I've got a different scholarship, maybe that means I got a better score. So she... On her phone, she opens up the website for the ACT test. And sure enough, she had gotten three more points than the previous four tries, enough to give her a tuition-free scholarship next fall. Now, watch this. This is the preacher in the family, so just forgive me, okay? (laughs) We rejoiced in that. But you know what I was most thankful for? Was what Brooke learned, not about the scholarship, but about submission. Hearing her mother and saying, okay, yeah, I'll do that. When probably she really didn't want to. Could somebody say amen to that? Like, oh, okay. But there's something about parental authority and parental wisdom, especially when it comes from our, our moms. Amen? I mean, I'm so glad Julie leaned in on that. I was kind of like, hey, it's good. It's what it is. We'll figure it out. She's like, no, we're not giving up yet. Man, she, she pressed hard in a, in a, in a godly way. And Brooke heard her mother and said, you know, Mom, yeah, if that's what you want, I'll do that. I don't understand why, and I'm not sure. I think I can even do it. But you know what? I'll do it for you. And if you ask Brooke what she really learned through that, it's not ching-ching wallet scholarship. It's like, man, it pays to listen to your parents. It pays to hear, trust them, and obey them. Could every parent in this room with your kid beside you say amen? You know I'm telling you the truth. Hey, kids, look at me. Learning to hear and submit is a key character trait that actually then leads to learning how to obey on the outside. You've got to have a submissive spirit inwardly to ever have an obedient posture outwardly. It's not just true for our kids, is it? It's true for adults as we respond to God, as we respond to church leadership, as we respond to each other, husbands to wives, wives to husbands. When there's no real spirit to hear, when there's no real heart of submission, we're always trying to twist instead of trust. Obedience is very difficult. But when we settle the trust issue, I find that obedience follows rather naturally. That's why our take-home truth is worded the way it's worded. Kids, fill the blanks in with me, would you? As you fill them in, parents, everyone else, could we read this together? Trust in God's character.
character is the key building block in the development of obedient conduct. So learning to trust God, that He has our best interests at heart, that He is perfect and holy, that His word is authoritative, then results in an obedient lifestyle. And where there's not an obedient lifestyle, there's somewhere underneath that a trust issue. And we've been twisting things instead of trusting Him. As we were thinking through this topic and this truth and just this, these four stories, these 75 verses, these two chapters, this what, one contrast? These past few weeks as a, as a, a team of elders who teach this, one song came to mind several times. Some of you will know it. Some of you won't. They said it right down here. <laughs> trust and obey. How do you even know that song? Would you raise your hand? You know the old song, Trust and Obey, over 100 years old? Do you know how it came to be, though? Um, that's just kind of ironic to me. Our son's name is Jonathan. That's his first name. You know him as Brett. His first name is Jonathan. This song was written as a result of D.L. Moody's preaching. My son went to Moody Bible Institute. But D.L. Moody was preaching in Massachusetts. And in the end of the service, a man testified. He said, I don't know all about what you're saying in this thing called the gospel. But I will trust it and then I'll obey it. Thank you, Mr. Moody. Well, the man leading the music during that set of meetings, the worship leader, was a man named Towner. Towner overheard that. And so he, he jotted down, I'll just trust it and then I'll obey it. He put it in his pocket. He sent the words to a friend of his named Samus, who when he saw it, he began to jot down additional verses that came to his mind and heart about trusting and obeying. So he sent this back to Towner and said, Towner, you'll never believe what I've jotted down from this sermon that D.L. Moody preached and this man responded and you sent me this note. And by the way, this doesn't happen over email. This takes a long time, okay, in those cultures, right? Towner got those three, four, five verses back of this man's poem about trusting and obeying. He put it to music and that's the very same music that we use today when we sing the words to this song called Trust and Obey that comes from a man who under D.L. Moody's preaching got saved and said, I'll just trust him and then I'll obey him. You ever felt like that? Like you don't have it all figured out. You're not sure why things are the way they are. This is your response in that moment. Whether you're a child or an adult, whether you're a grandpa toddler, whether you're a teenager, a parent, this should be our response. Lord, I'll trust you and I'll obey you. Yeah, something could be late. You may find that you have the urge to maneuver, manipulate. Something could be dark. Something could be difficult. Something could be out of sync. A number of things could say to you, hey, something's not right. You may have the feeling like you should impulsively try to fix it. And that's what twisters do. I have a better solution for you. Trust God's character, that He's a good God and a good shepherd, and He's got you. And no matter how He chooses to, He will take care of you. I'll mention this again. This is what we see in Jonathan's response to his dad. Again, it's, it, it, it just boggles my mind, but he must have known somewhere 
I don't know how God's going to rescue me in this, but God will not violate his own character. So, so Dad, yeah, you do what you got to do. And th- there's this sense of trust in Jonathan that God's got him. That's what we're after. That's the character we're looking for. Fearfully, excuse me, faithfully obedient, not fearfully insecure. A truster, not a twister. Let's conclude the message this morning by answering a couple of questions. Then I want to show you a simple visual that I think will maybe kind of settle all this for us as we wrap things up. Were there any questions that came in, first of all? There was two questions. Let's take those. And Travis will be setting something up behind me, so don't let it be distracting, but you'll see where that's going in a minute. Why was, uh, was Jonathan disobeying Saul in this chapter? How can we know when obeying God requires disobeying earthly authority? No, I don't think Saul, I'll just take the first question. I don't think Jonathan was disobeying Saul. Um, in regards to the food, he, didn't, he was not aware of the command not to eat, first of all. Uh, second of all, I, I don't know that there was an explicit command not to attack the Philistines. It seemed like they were running in fear. And so I don't know there was any command from the king not to attack. So I think Jonathan was just saying, man, it's our job to attack, let's go after it. So I don't think he was disobeying his father or the king, no. It was a brave move, though, um, and it was a courageous move. It was a bold move. I don't think it was a disobedient move. And the second part says, how can we know when obeying God requires disobeying earthly authority? The best way to answer that, and that's a a big discussion. Um, Let's put the engine on that side, can we? This time, thanks. Um, If the physical earthly authorities ask you to blatantly disobey God's word, I think we have freedom to say, I'll obey God rather than man under this condition. Watch this. And we're getting way off track. Man, Lord, help me on this one. (laughs) That you're also willing to submit to its consequences. And I would take Peter and John as examples. Because I think an attitude of submission should always characterize God's people. Remember Peter and John at the temple? They said, you know what, if... We're going to preach no matter what you say, but if you want to arrest us, you can go do that. We're not going to fight back at you. We're not going to try to start a protest, and we're not going to... They were willing to submit to the consequences, even in their civil disobedience. Does that make sense? What I see some Christians is, we want to disobey, and then we want to make sure that we don't pay for that either. But I think in God's economy, and even Paul, we see this, and Peter, and and the disciples, there's a sense in which they were going to obey God rather than man, amen, but then they were willing to submit to those consequences too. And I think that's where maybe a lot of us should wrestle. So to answer the question, when there's blatant uh, uh, request or command to disobey God's word, I think we can obey God's word instead. But be sure you're willing then to be under those consequences. Okay? Let's take one more question. How did Jonathan develop such great character in spite of his father's lack of character? Wow, that's a great question, isn't it? And we don't know the answer from the text. So let's first of all admit that everyone here will give an opinion on that question. We don't have a specific answer. My opinion is that it was two things. First of all, and primarily, it was the work of God's spirit in him. Um, God's hand was on Jonathan in the midst of difficult situations. We just have to know that and trust that and believe that. Second of all, it does appear there were people, even apart from Saul, who leaned into Jonathan, who were probably very godly influences. Namely, we'll see in the next few chapters, his best friend, David. There were probably other adults that leaned in. You know, uh, was Saul corrupt? Was his kingdom snatched away? 
Was he insecure and image-based and, and very fearful? Yes, but that doesn't mean every single person was. There were probably some other people there who helped a lot and were very important in Jonathan's life that may have helped him with developing such godly character. That's the best opinion answer I have. If you have some other ones, man, feel free to share them and email to me. I'd love to hear those, okay? Now, in, in a lot of those two questions, we have to ask ourselves this. How do we become a truster and not a twister? How do we make sure the train of our life doesn't get off the rails at the end? How can we not be a manipulator and a maneuver? How can we instead just trust the Lord and obey Him? Well, I want to talk to you for the last little bit about how to build your life in the right order and, and so that you become someone who trusts God and obeys God. So picture your life as a train. Kids, teenagers, parents, adults, picture your life as a train. If the train is going in this direction, all right? Kids, question, is this going to work? Okay, let me have someone in the fourth grade. We got a fourth grader here? Anyone in the fourth grade? I saw that hand right there. Can you come put this in the right order? Would you mind? Is that Olivia? Did you get the name right? Or? Lydia, I'm sorry. Lydia, can you put this in the right order? Okay, so that's the engine. Oh, there's the caboose. Okay. That must be just the middle car we call. Is there an official name for the middle cars? I don't know. Train car? Car? Yeah. All right. Lydia, way to go. Can we thank you? Lydia? Great job. Perfect. You want to say help, you want to help me a little more? So, if this is the right order, that our life going this direction needs to be driven by an engine, let's see if this, this would be how Saul filled his engine. Can you put this word on the uh, engine? It's not holding, is it? Try this word. Great. You see, if you try to drive the life, the train of your life with feelings, that's a bad label for the engine. It really won't hold. Instead, facts, really, what you know about God, what you know to be true, really drives the train of your life. So then where does this go? Can you put this on the caboose? So we're not getting rid of our emotions or feelings. We're trying to keep in the right order. And then... That sandwiches our confidence. So let's put that in the middle. So watch this. And Lydia has done a great job helping me out. Really, a train, your life is going this direction, will stay on the tracks best when facts are followed by faith and those are followed by feeling. You get those out of order, what you have is an incorrect train that will probably derail if it's even moving at all. Lydia? Thank you very much. I appreciate your help in that. Let's talk more about this for a minute, can we? Saul tried to make feelings his engine. He was always making bad decisions. If you check the end of his life, it derailed badly. Suicide. Jonathan let the facts drive the train of his life. What he knew about God, what he knew God's commands were what he knew he was to do, his role, how he was to react. 
It doesn't mean that Jonathan didn't have feelings, but he let his feelings, watch this, uh, be tethered and hinged by what he knew about God and the confidence he had in God. See, when we get this out of order, we start thinking, well, I feel a certain way, so I have confidence in my feelings, and then facts are in the rear, and that doesn't work. But when we know what God has said and who God is, and then we have confidence in Him, then our conduct, how we feel about things, how we act about things, follows. That's why these are good synonyms. Watch this. God's character, the core of the gospel, breeds the kind of confidence in God that allow us then to act and feel the right ways. You say, Todd, what, what is it we should know? This is why I think it's very important that, first of all, we understand that we can call it gospel-centered. We might, on this day, call it gospel-driven. Maybe we call it gospel-powered. You with me? Now, now watch this, church. And we've said this for years. That there is a God, Hebrews eleven six, and whoever comes to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's a, that's a knowledge issue there. I believe, I know something true about God. He exists and he rewards. God the Son existed in historical time and space. The question of the Lord Jesus Christ's existence isn't really up for debate. The question is, was he God? But his existence is verifiable, historical, it's evidential. Those are facts. And so because we know that, that God exists, Jesus Christ existed, he sent the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of those who believe, we have to now say, okay, so what is it that we know? What do we, what do we put our confidence in? It's these gospel-centered, gospel-powered, gospel-driven facts. So that's why Paul would say, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are certain things that we just have to be willing to put our arms around and say, these are things that we know. They're true. And saying you don't like them doesn't change the fact that they're true. Saying you don't want to submit to them doesn't change the fact that they're true. This is the way a, a, a life of character is built. On the facts that God is who he says he is. And his character is impeccable. And so we rest and build on that. Our confidence then is in God, not us. And that allows us then to have the kind of conduct and feelings, and empathy, and emotion. That's biblical, right, not impulsive and destructive. Does this make sense? This is Jonathan. That's Saul. And it's not sticking on purpose, by the way. My question is, which... Um, which word drives the engine of your life? Are, are you gospel-centered, gospel power? Are you embracing what God has told us is truth, authoritative truth over our life? Do you have ears to hear? Are you submissive? Or is it always about what you think and what you want and you'll manipulate and twist until you get it that way? That kind of train eventually comes off the tracks.
But God has promised, Jude 24 and 25, I'll read it later this morning, we'll read it, that he will bring us all the way safely home, amen? That's why he has all dominion, power, authority, glory, and majesty. This is the way to do it. Now, one last thought. Then I'll have you discuss this train for about 60 seconds in your family groups or as a couple or just think about it as a person. Say, Todd, what's one step I can take in regards to building this kind of life? What's one thing I can do tomorrow that would help me be more like Jonathan and less like Saul? How can I make sure I'm moving towards being a truster and not a twister? I'll give you one just simple action step, okay? It will affect your parenting. It will affect your Childrening. I was going to say you'll affect your kidding, but that's kind of actually a word, so I can't use that, right? It'll affect your, it'll affect your whole life, and that's this. Listen very carefully. And some of you are probably, maybe you may balk at this, but it's the best long-term move you can make as far as the first step. You ready? Learn everything you can about God. There's a big word for that, What's the big word? Theology. I love theology. We hear it, sometimes we think, well, that's not real practical. That's seminary, or that's classroom. And see, we've been sold a bill of goods on that deal. Because it is actually what we believe about God, what we know to be true about God, that helps us when our feelings want to lie to us. And I can tell you from just a few, few brief years on this earth, just a little over 50, 28 years married, 26 as a parent. There's been times when I've looked out the window and I thought, my, the sun will never come up again. I've thought that at times. There have been times I thought, you know, I'm going to resign tomorrow. I'm done. There have been times I thought, man, I hope I wake up married tomorrow. Yeah, I thought that. There have been times I thought, wow, I don't feel like this is going very well. And in those very moments, it wasn't my emotion that kept my nose in the game. It was my theology. So you're right. I don't have a ton of time for folks who dismiss theology. I think theology is what keeps our feet grounded when our feelings want to tell us to run. And what is theology? It's what you know to be true about God. So what do we do? We have a church that's high on content. You're right. We immerse your kids in doctrine early. We give you a lot of resources for your lighthouses. So much so that we're like, hey, you know, Todd, Chris, back off. Well, we'll just tell you to pick and choose. How's that sound? We have longer services. We go verse by verse. There's a lot of things we do for this one reason. We feel like and it's not that learning itself is like this magic trick. It's the fact that when we know God, then the train just rolls a lot better. Does that make sense? So what's the best thing you could do in light of all this? Just get to know God. Learn as much as you can about God. Read your Bible. I mean, I'm coming back to basic things I've said for months, years. I've said these for decades to kids, to this church for 13 years. Read your Bible regularly. It's God's revelation to you. Spend time with God praying. Get involved in a small group where you can talk about your relationship with God. 
Be done with isolation. Embrace community. Attend regularly. Prioritize your attendance so that you learn about God and how He operates. Learn songs that speak of deep truth, of who God is and how He operates. If you're raising kids, man, read the Bible to them. Talk about it at dinner. Ask them hard questions. Listen to their questions. I saw a kid after first service. He asked them the questions, and I said, you know, I love your inquisitive heart. He said, sometimes my parents don't. <laughs> and I, I know his parents. I said, you know what? Actually, your parents do, and I'll always support you parents. I said, your parents do. I said, it's frustrating at times when you're in the middle of puberty, and you ask, you know, a million questions to dad. I said, our kids are that way. But the truth is, we love an inquisitive mind, your curiosity. It's how you learn. It's how you grow. I said, you keep asking, and he laughed, and he grinned. I know it's difficult sometimes in those moments. But man, let's just pour into our kids. Let's spend time with them. Talk about tough issues. Ask hard questions. Let your kids talk. Do all you can to bring the Bible to bear upon every single situation. Ask your family, why do we do that? Why do we give that? Why do we think that? Why do we watch that? The goal isn't that you're suddenly going to shut down and move to Montana. That's not my, my point. My point is, ask the questions that take you back to why do we do we do? There's a set of facts, there's a set of biblical beliefs that we hold to. It's truth. This is why we do it. And as you keep immersing your kids into that, pouring that into them, over time, their train begins to be driven by the engine of of God's truth, who He is, how He operates. This is the best way to roll down the tracks of life. So I don't know which of these areas God's pinpointing in your life. I just picked one and gave you one simple action step. Start learning all you can about God. Maybe the Lord's leaned in some other areas for you. Maybe you're sitting next to your spouse or with your kids like, man, we got we to gotta kind of arrest this one in our family. We're just way too emotionally impulsive on things. Or maybe you have no confidence in the Lord. For some reason, it just really kind of short circuits your obedience. You kind of know some things, but it never seems to go to the next step. Talk about that as a family, as a couple, or even just as a person. Just reflect on which one of these is God kind of pressing on your chest about. I'll give you about 60 seconds, then Becky and Travis, they kind of lead most of our family ministries here from birth to college. They're going to come, they're going to pray for us, and we'll sing one more song, okay? So 60 seconds, talk about which of these areas God's pressing it on you with, maybe how you can adjust your life to his conviction.